Well, I'm Janet Jacobson. I'm the director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and I just um, am here to welcome you, um, to thank you for coming out on this cold, cold evening, and to say what an honor it is for the Barnard Center for Research on Women in conjunction with our colleagues at the Institute for Research on Women and Gender at Columbia to host this event celebrating the life and work of Grace Paley. Um, Grace Paley's work has been inspirational for us for the entire um, time, since 1971, that the center has been in existence. She spoke for us, actually, most recently at an event we did um, in honor of Barnard alumna June Jordan in conjunction with um, the Grad Center at CUNY. And um, it was a very moving evening overall, although in many ways I found Grace's talk to be one of the most moving parts of that evening. Although she did say to us, and I think it's something that we'll, we'll touch upon uh, again this evening, that for her it was, in her long and storied life, the, the scariest time that she had lived through, the time that was then... Um, in the first uh, term of the Bush administration, and here we are many years later um, facing many of the same problems. Unfortunately, I think her predictions have in some ways borne true. Um, but she also gives us inspiration, despite whatever odds we're facing in the world around us, to um, keep fighting, shall we say. So without further ado, I want to introduce our uh, moderator for this evening, Beatrix Gates, who is a poet, um, uh, the author of Ten Minutes and In the Open, and she published Grace Paley's first book of poems, Leaning Forward, at Granite Press. Thank you very much. B. I'm so glad you all came out tonight, and may there be more such things going on in every borough, everywhere, for Grace on December 11th, 2010, 11 and on. Um, this was initiated by the Legacy Project, and the Legacy Project was invented by Bob Nichols and Nora Paley. I don't know if they made it here tonight. They were talking about it, but we'll see. Um, they wanted to celebrate Grace on her birthday to keep her work alive in all the senses through direct political action, readings, theater, or any form of making imaginative trouble and truthful naming. Please check out the Legacy blog. It is on your programs to see what's going on, and it's going on all over. I know Bob was at an event at the Joiner Center a few days ago. There was something else in Vermont yesterday, and there's a lot going on. So you can Check that out to see what's going on or add your own event to it as we make more. Um, Janet has thanked people already, but I've spent a lot of time talking with Lucy Trainer and Pam Painter in the last month, so I want to thank them for everything they've done. So a handful of us, yes, yeah. A handful of us, really, those available, as it always is, started last April talking, spurred on by Eva wanting to start early, and we said, enough memorials, let's make a touchstone event that faces outward and calls grace forward. Amy said, speaking truth to power in grace's complicated spirit, and then who knows what we might need to be responding to by December 11th. Yes. So in a whirlwind of brainstorming emails, building consensus, a year's worth of projects really flew from our mouths. 
but we came to Speaking Truth to Power looking for Clarity's blaze. And we wanted to bring together a wide range of women presenters to speak, not people we had necessarily already heard from or we didn't want to always talk about things we already know. So the job at hand is to name the trouble, to take it to heart, to alter the conversation, and bring energy to the table, to every day, with grace, not beside us, but with us, as we hear her same story. It's the story that we are in. So talking with Nesta the other day on the phone, we joked about Grace being way ahead of the times with Twitter, that she was always answering, answering, answering the phone and responding, responding, no matter what, all the time. We spoke about needing to create ongoing forums for talk in print and online, outside of the academy and in, to keep the conversation open and steady brainstorming about what to do, how to take back the terms of talk, change the subject, altering the assumption of constant war and the stultifying of imagination on all sides. So among the women here tonight are fiery initiators, and I include poets under that name, community activists, historians, a number of founders, and all present continue the work of speaking truth to power. What we share is the ability to respond. Grace called the heart that bloody motor, respectfully, excitedly, strong breath, good air, moving through human determination to stay alive, be here, and respond. So there are longer bios in the program, but the women you're going to hear from tonight in this order, which of course has changed three times in the last two days, are <laughs> Anestra King, an igniter of the Women's Pentagon Action, and who could forget the weaving shut of the doors with the men in suits trying to make their way in and out with their, not their handbags, but their bomb bags, whatever they are. Who could forget that, those of us who were there? Anyway, Nesta, with her relentless questioning, imagination, and humor, who made sure with her newly broken arm that the cast was pink in case she had to go to a demonstration. <laughs> we also have Lucila Silva and Perla Placencia, who are here from the Center for Immigrant Families, a collective of low-income immigrant women of color based not 12 blocks from this spot on 104th and Broadway. Number three will be Nancy Krikorian, who as a young student was part of the Upper Valley Committee Against Registration for the Draft Challenging the War with Grace on the Vermont-New Hampshire border and is now New York City Coordinator for Code Pink, Number four, writer Yvette Christiense, who in her work reveals the complexity of colonization, opening a field of questions that flip power and let us see out the backs of our heads across continents and oceans, a vision we need. And then we have our elder, Amy, who will be the last speaker, women's historian, She's Grace's contemporary, I think almost exactly Grace's age within three months. 
She grew up in the coops of the Bronx, enjoying urgent political roots cast in her family as communist to Grace's socialist family. So everyone is going to speak, and then we're going to speak among ourselves and with each other, and then with all of you. Thank you. I wanted to read uh, a poem from Grace's uh, last book of poems, Fidelity, and this poem is called News. Although we would prefer to talk and talk it into psychological theory, the prevalence of small genocides or the recent disease floating toward us from another continent, we must not, while she speaks her eyes, frighten us. She is only one person. She tells us her terrible news. We want to leave the room. We may not. We must listen. In this wrong world, this is what we must do. We must bear it. And this is sort of the later grace, <laughs> worrying about the world, um, you know, not, you know, and in some ways seeing a larger and larger um, view of what was out there. Um, and, and I think, as B mentioned, um, becoming more and more worried. You know, the number of times that I heard her say uh, in the last part of her life, you know, when she would meet people that she regarded as her age contemporaries, it was like, what are we going to do? What have we done? We failed them. It's worse. The world is a worse place now than it was when we came into it. And, you know, a, a, a real concern about the ecological catastrophe, about war, and a, and a restlessness about that. You know, the, an idea that, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, you know, I always wondered if it was, uh, if, I mean, I think she meant it in a certain way, but how, it was always this restless, how could we as a generation have done better? <laughs> And, you know, I think I feel that at this point as a person my age in the, in the middle generation, a generation down from grace, like we've got to do better and look at what we're confronted with. Um, and so I think this question, um, you know, that we're trying to talk about tonight, about where does Grace's legacy go and, and, and how does she... I just, oh, here it is. How does she in some way, you know, that restless spirit, you know, never satisfied. I mean, how does she abide with us going forward? Where do we go? Um, and, you know, I love this picture, which I, I, I think it's just the most wonderful picture. So I sort of just wanted to hold it up to invoke her. Um, and when we were coming in, B and I were coming in, we saw that she had been pasted to the inside of the door over there. And you could see over her the grill and she looked like she was in jail, you know. She was, like, she was being held for civil disobedience. And I think about the number of times that I've seen her on, on behind a grill or on the other side of a fence um, after she'd been arrested. And so I think it, was, it wasn't exactly intentional, but it was really sort of great. Uh, and, and, you know, she was in those moments also happy, you know, very alive, very happy. And um, I think the idea then of, of figuring out how we kind of continue forward speaking truth to power and what, what her legacy is about. I mean, in some ways, it's also sat these occasions, I realize, which are now sort of feeling like they roll around annually in some form or another. You know, they're, they're also sad, you know, because in some ways, you know, it forces you to think about her. It forces you to miss her, you know, a lot. Um, and but then also to feel, I think, in that that sense of responsibility, you know, that that comes along um, with her legacy. And I think the speaking truth to power really is originally a Quaker idea, um, but it's it's you know it's the idea 
that, of, of, uh, you know, that B was calling truthful naming and, you know, the need to continually do that. And I think, you know, we are, may have an especially uh, arduous challenge these days with our silver-tongued president, you know, who accepts the uh, Peace Prize at the same time he's, in, uh, you know, has nine surges going in, in Afghanistan. And so the question of how the language is manipulated and how it is, what we know is manipulated and who gets to tell the story of where we are, who we are, what we're doing, and all of that. You know, these are areas of, of real struggle. Um, and so I think it becomes more difficult. And I mean, I was sort of anticipating having here tonight, um, or hoping, you know, that there would be a number of people who are in the generation beyond me. And I think that, you know, where we are with, with some of this is that uh, so many people put their all into the Barack Obama campaign and had so, you know, and, and, and in some ways followed into that historical narrative. Now we look at what's happening. And so the need to kind of be able to discern and how to retrieve that hopefulness and take it somewhere truthful um, is one of our, you know, I think the most pressing challenges. And that's particularly true, I think, for us as Americans. And so I think one of the things that, that, that I've been doing, um, you know, this week is following Copenhagen because one of the issues that I share an interest with, you know, one of the things we worked on together was uh, environmental and ecological politics and how those relate particularly to women and to feminism and Grace and Amy and... Um, um, you know, their cohort were very strong in getting us to see that this is also, that, that militarism is in a way the biggest threat to eco our ecology that there is. So, you know, one of the things that I've been following is the Copenhagen um, uh, 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 conference. And it really does strike me that some of the things that are, there, that are being said there don't buy the lie, uh, system change, not climate change, no borders, um, um, and, you know, the, the post-oil society, you know, with the slogan of leave the oil in the soil, the coal in the hole, and the sands in the land, um, <laughs> is something that would have, uh, you know, and this is a slogan from an Ecuadorian group led by women, you know, and like many of these organizations, as I, I'm working on sort of thinking about what is a feminist, contemporary feminist perspective on these issues, and this is something, you know, I miss Grace all the time that I'd love to talk to her about, because you see all these women who uh, are leading all these organizations and these movements, and it's not necessarily a women's organization or even as explicitly a feminist organization, but yet there's so much of that in there, and it's so interesting to see. And uh, so this, this, this slogan that I just uh, read comes from uh, an Ecuadorian group, a post-oil society, which is advocating leaving Ecuador's oil in the ground rather than using that as a basis for a new economy. And, you know, um, there are just so many things, I think, in that situation that, you know, uh, that you begin to see that some of the things that we talked about are talked about in a way that people sometimes said to us were quite utopian. Uh, you know, our various slogans of feminist world is a nuclear-free zone um, um, and our various ways of sort of thinking about the interconnectedness of the world, you now see scientifically and politically sort of coming over the horizon that we do actually share one climate. And some of the things that were seen as, I think, really far out, you know, 30 years ago when we were beginning to talk about them and think about them, now they just strike you as, you know, fact um, when, that we are all part of one interconnected world. You know, the kind of things that Barbara Deming wrote about and that, that Grace also uh, talked about and wrote about. And so I think in some ways, you know, it's as if, um, 
you know, the things that we've always talked about um, in the Grace Legacy Project are kind of getting a renewed life and a, and a new a new way of, of, of being expressed, you know, I think by a wider group. So I think all of this is, is you know, the, current, the currentness of it is really quite, um, is, is quite amazing to me. And I think she would really find it really quite interesting. So that's sort of some of what I think is current, you know, and, you know, we can go on and talk more. Yeah. Lucila and Perla. Lucila will be giving her talk in Spanish, which will be translated by Perla. Lucila Silva, Perla Placencia, from CIF. Buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Lucila Silva. Soy miembro del colectivo del Centro de Familias Inmigrantes. Hoy es un día especial porque estamos recordando a una gran persona, una gran mujer activista que trabajó dando su tiempo e ideas para llegar a crear cambios en la comunidad. Estamos homenajeando a la señora Grace Paley, a quien recordamos con mucho cariño y aunque no tuvimos la oportunidad de conocerla, nos gustaría seguir su legado trabajando en la comunidad y ayudando a otras personas, no importando su raza o color. Y juntas, luchemos para seguir cambios en la comunidad. Hi, good evening. My name is Lucila Silva, and I am a member of the collective at the Center for Immigrant Families. Today is a very special day because we're remembering um, a great person, a great activist who worked in her community, um, giving her time and her ideas to create the kind of change within the community that was necessary. We're honoring Ms. Grace Paley, who we remember with a lot of love. And although we weren't able, we didn't have the great opportunity to actually meet her, we would love to um, follow in her footsteps through her legacy and continue working in, in the community, helping other people without um, their race or their color being um, important. Um, and together, fighting for creating the type of change that we want to see in our communities. Grace Paley ha inspirado a todos aquellos que están luchando por la justicia social. A nosotras, en el Centro de Familias Inmigrantes, nos inspiró por su compromiso de estar en la calle y hacer que su voz se escuchara junto con la de otros en la comunidad. Su compromiso al poder y belleza de contar nuestras historias. Su compromiso a la importancia de reconocer las experiencias de cada individuo y reconocer el poder y la belleza de poder compartir estas experiencias. Grace Paley has inspired all of those who are fighting within the social justice movement. So she inspired us in particular at the Center for Immigrant Family in different ways, but with her commitment to be out to being out there on the street and making sure that her voice was heard along with the, the voices of those within the community. Her compromise, I'm sorry, her um, dedication to the power and the beauty of being able to tell our own stories, and her dedication to the importance of recognizing the experiences of each and every individual, and recognizing the power and the beauty of being able to share these experiences. Como escritora, ella reconoció la importancia de la expresión cultural, a lo cual nosotras nos hemos comprometido. El poder de poesía y ficción en nuestros talleres ha sido una manera de nosotras podernos expresar 
individualmente y colectivamente. Ella reconoció la importancia del amor y la dignidad en este trabajo por la justicia social. Grace Palin representa la visión y el trabajo y es la base para que el Centro de Familias Inmigrantes siga adelante. Quiero compartir con ustedes nuestros objetivos, metas y propósitos del Centro de Familias. As a writer, she recognized the importance of being able to be, being able to express oneself through cultural um, through cultural means, which we are very much um, which is very much a part of our work. The power of poetry and fiction within our workshops is one of the ways that we have been able to express ourselves individually and collectively. She also recognized the importance of love and dignity as we do our work within the social justice movement. Much of what Grace Paley represents and who she is is the foundation of the vision and the work of the Center for Immigrant Families. Now I would like to briefly share with you some of our objectives, our goals, and some of the work that we do at the Center for Immigrant Families. El Centro de Familias Inmigrantes fue fundadora a raíz de las leyes de reforma en 1996 de inmigración y de welfare que en conjunto tuvo consecuencias devastadoras en la vida de los pobres y la clase trabajadora de color y los inmigrantes, en particular las mujeres. Nos reunimos alrededor de dos preocupaciones centrales. Primero, Hubo la necesidad de un enfoque holístico que reconoció que la xenofobia y el racismo afectara no solo las condiciones materiales, sino también el emocional y el bienestar psicológico de los individuos y de las comunidades. En segundo lugar, existía la creencia de que los más directamente afectados necesitaban estar a la vanguardia de las respuestas, de las soluciones no como víctimas, sino como agentes de cambio. The Center for Immigrant Families was founded in the wake of the 1996 immigration and welfare reform laws that together had dire consequences on the lives of poor and working class people of color and immigrants, particularly women. We came together around two central concerns. The first, that there was a need for a holistic approach one that acknowledged that xenophobia and racism affected not only the material conditions, but also the emotional and psychological well-being of individuals and of communities. Second, there was a belief that those most directly affected needed to be at the forefront of the responses driving the solutions, not as victims, but as agents of change. Hoy en día, el Centro de Familias es una organización colectiva de mujeres de bajos ingresos, de inmigrantes de color y de miembros de la comunidad en el Alto Manhattan. El Centro de Familias tiene como misión el hacer frente a los desafíos interconectados que enfrentan nuestras comunidades mediante la vinculación de nuestro personal y el bienestar psicológico, la salud y el desarrollo sostenido de la organización que transforma las causas profundas de las injusticias que enfrentan 
y sus múltiples capas de impacto sobre nuestras vidas y comunidades. Tenemos un enfoque que reconoce la interrelación existente entre la opresión y localiza nuestra resistencia más poderosa como el que puede surgir de la fuerza de lo que somos, las mujeres, que trabajan para sostener a sus familias, dándoles protección y cuidado. Today, CIF is a collectively run organization of low-income immigrant women of color and community members right here in Uptown Manhattan. CIF's mission is to address the interconnected challenges facing our communities by linking our personal, psychological well-being, health, and development to sustained organizing that transforms the root causes of the injustices we confront and their multi-layered impacts on our lives and communities. We built from an approach that recognizes the intersectionality of, our oppres of oppressions and locates our most powerful resistance as one that can emerge from the strength of who we are as women, economic providers, um, individuals who protect and care for our families. Durante los últimos años, hemos trabajado en el proyecto del desafío de la segregación en nuestras escuelas públicas. Este es un proyecto impulsado por los miembros que surgió de las escuelas popular de mujeres que trabajan para crear el poder sostenible y el liderazgo de los padres de bajos ingresos y de color para recuperar y transformar nuestras escuelas. Demanda un sistema de educación pública que sirva realmente a nuestros hijos. El Centro de Familias Inmigrantes es el que promueve el liderazgo de las mujeres y el papel específico que desempeña como guardianes y defensores de nuestros niños. Nuestro objetivo es de incluir a toda la comunidad y juntas lograr nuestras metas y objetivos. Queremos dar gracias a Grace Payle por este legado que nos dejó de seguir ayudando a nuestra comunidad. Gracias a todos los presentes por su asistencia en este evento. Y gracias también por la invitación que me han hecho de estar con ustedes. Over the past number of years, through our project to challenge segregation in our public schools, which is a member-driven project that grew out of our Escuela Popular de Mujeres program, works to build sustainable power and leadership among low-income parents of color to take back and transform our schools and demand a public education system that truly serves our children. CIF's approach is one that takes the leadership of women and the specific role we play. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Right. Um, CIF's approach is one that promotes the leadership of women and the specific role we play as caretakers and advocates for our children. Our objective is to, to include everyone in our community to really reach our goals and be part of this struggle. We would like to thank Grace Paley for her legacy and thank everyone present here for being part of this um, honoring of Grace Paley. And also thank you for the invitation to be able to share with you um, why Grace Paley has inspired us. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Nancy Krikorian. I met Grace in the early 80s when I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth College. At the time, Grace and I were both members of the Upper Valley Committee Against Registration and the Draft. 
The last time I saw Grace was in 2004, around the publication of the paperback of my second novel when I did a reading at Dartmouth. There was a faculty dinner afterwards at which I had the honor and pleasure of sitting next to Grace. I don't think we actually ever saw each other between those two times, but in the intervening years, I became a huge fan. She was in my literary pantheon as well as in my list of activist righteous souls. There was not much overlap between those two lists, so Grace had a special place in my heart, and I thought of her as a model of what I aspired to be. Here are two lines from Grace's short story, Wants, that exemplify what I admired in her fiction. He had a habit throughout the 27 years of making a narrow remark which, like a plumber's snake, could work its way through the ear, down the throat, halfway to my heart. He would then disappear, leaving me choking with equipment. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> and here are three lines that exemplify what I admired in Grace as an activist. We were adamant about not letting the park be cut into for real estate interests. One of the things I learned was stubbornness. And I've thought more and more that that's the real meaning of nonviolent civil disobedience, to be utterly and absolutely stubborn. <laughs> stubborn. Um, I was invited to be at this Grace Paley Legacy event as a representative of Code Pink Women for Peace, an utterly and absolutely stubborn, women-initiated grassroots peace and social justice movement that works to end wars and occupations and to redirect our nation's resources to life-affirming priorities such as health, education, and housing. Code Pink is known for its use of creative nonviolent direct action in an effort to break through the sound bites and narratives prevalent in the mainstream media with a message of peace. You might have seen Code Pink's Desiree Farouz holding up hands covered with red paint towards Kwandi Rice's face, as Des said, the blood of Iraqi civilians is on your hands. You might have seen Code Pink's Jody Evans or Medea Benjamin as they were hauled out of the 2004 Republican National Convention and again out of the 2008 Republican National Convention. These kind of high-profile actions by Code Pink activists, including banner drops, die-ins, sit-ins, disruptions, and attempted citizens' arrests of war criminals, have empowered women across the country to stand up and say no to the wars in and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Sometimes our loud interventions have been called rude, but when polite political discourse countenances the killing of tens of thousands of unarmed civilians, then perhaps rudeness, along with utter and absolute stubbornness, are what we need. In addition to encouraging American women to raise their voices against war and occupation, Code Pink has also helped to amplify the voices of women from Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places where U.S. foreign policy has a huge negative impact on the lives of women and their children. We have sent delegations of women to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran to speak with people in those countries, fostering people-to-people -people ties, and then bringing back to our communities the stories that we heard. In March of 2005, we brought a delegation of Iraqi women to the States and sponsored their cross-country speaking tour. This past fall, we co-sponsored the speaking tours of Zoya, a representative of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, and of Malalai Joya, the Afghan parliamentarian who was kicked out of government because she spoke out against the warlords and drug traffickers who are running and ruining her country. Last year, during Israel's Operation Cast Lead, 
Code Pink felt compelled while watching U.S. produced and funded weapons raining down on the Palestinians of Gaza to finally take on the somewhat polarizing issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We sent a delegation to Gaza via Egypt for International Women's Day to witness the devastation left behind by Israel's punishing assault and the ongoing privation caused by the two-plus-year blockade of Gaza. More delegations went in June, and the one that attempted and failed to get into Gaza from Israel instead met with activists from the Israeli Coalition of Women for Peace and visited the village of Belin during the weekly nonviolent protest against the annexation wall. We launched our stolen beauty boycott campaign against the settlement products of Ahava Dead Sea Laboratories with the Bikini Brigade protest at the Ahava store at the Tel Aviv Hilton. <laughs> you, you cannot believe the amount of press attention you can get with a bunch of young women in bikinis. <laughs> this past fall, we partnered with uh, Jewish Voice for Peace to sponsor a tour by two young Israeli refuseniks Maya and Netta, two very brave and articulate 19-year-old women, traveled from coast to coast explaining why they chose jail time over army service and what they view as an illegal occupation. When Maya and Netta fin first started their speaking tour, they had to be persuaded to speak about their own lives and their own first-hand experiences of the occupation. They had come prepared with a PowerPoint presentation, maps of the shrinking Palestinian territories, photos of the annexation wall, and a string of details about the dispossession and daily violence visited on the Palestinians under the occupation. But what had even more power than these facts were the stories that these young women had to tell about what they themselves had witnessed. It was the moral authority of their particular embodied stories that had the most profound impact on their audiences. At first, they had a resistance to telling just their stories. They believed that the objective facts about what was going on were enough, and they didn't want to egocentrically put themselves at the center of the story. But the facts alone are never enough to connect people to causes. What is always needed, as Grace taught us so well, is the connective tissue of narrative and the ability to bring to the public commons not just stories, but storytellers the mainstream culture would rather not hear. Watching Maya and Netta grow into their roles as such storytellers was a powerful experience. When we celebrate Grace's legacy of speaking truth to power, I think not only of Maya and Netta's careful, reasoned responses to those who disagreed with them, but also of Mala, Malalai Joya, the Afghan parliamentarian, whose truth-telling has resulted in at least four assassination attempts against her. I had the honor and pleasure of hosting Malalai at our apartment for two nights of her visit to New York City in October. She was a genteel and gentle mouse of a house guest, padding around in slippers and flannel pajamas, but after she left, I read her memoir. I learned that this tiny, pretty, polite young woman was also a lion who raged against the men who were destroying her country and causing the suffering of women and children across Afghanistan. In her book, which was here called A Woman Against Warlord, Among Warlords in, in the UK, was called Raising My Voice. Malalai wrote of her country, a staggering 70% of Afghans survive on less than $2 per day. And it is estimated that more than half of Afghan men and 80% of Afghan women are illiterate. In the past few years, hundreds of women have committed self-immolation, literally burned themselves to death to escape their miseries. This is the history I have lived through, and this is the tragic situation today that I am working with many others to change. 
I am no better than any of my suffering people. Fate and history have made me, in some ways, a voice of the voiceless, the many thousands and millions of Afghans who have endured decades of war and injustice. As Grace wrote in her essay of Poetry, Women in the World, but what art is about, and this is what justice is about, although you'll have your own interpretations, is the illumination of what isn't known, the lighting up of what is under a rock, of what has been hidden. It is this lesson, the unity of art and justice, that Grace's work and life impart to us. It is why Code Pink will always work to create the political space for stories and their tellers that the powers that be try to keep silent. Thank you, Nancy. Yvette Christiense. Thank you. It's so hard to follow uh, a paper as profound and as grounding as Nancy's. Um, my thanks to Beatrix and also to Janet Jacobson um, for tonight. Grace Paley's first book is titled Looking Forward. And the very first poem, which we have thanks to B, her publisher, um, in that book turns to fire in its most primordial moment, its creation, but not as the prerogative of the gods and therefore not to be stolen by Prometheus. Such heroic contest is outside of this poem's worldly concerns. Rather, Paley's poems, uh, the first line of Paley's poem reads, a woman invented fire and called it the wheel. Here is no monolithic heroine to re replace the monolithic hero. A different order of being acts, not the opposite Promethean woman with a capital W, but a woman whose act of creation is, as we shall see, an imaginative response to the world in which she lives, this living comprised of seeing, listening, engaging, and coining. In a 1992 conversation, Paley said of her prose, I got my courage for the way I write stories from first writing poems. Paley explained that what she had learned from poetry was how to move language around. Whether prose or poetry, Paley's writing achieves a fidelity to the daily language of place, the city, the city that demands an ethical response to being amongst so many who are possibly all strangers. A city of which she wrote uh, as, of as a home, culturally rich in its backgrounds, its verbal fluency, she wrote of an exuberance, she wrote with an exuberance, an ease of impulse, and a faith, at least while she was young, in the American promise of opportunity, a promise that Paley held the nation to ransom for. That faith was underscored in her politics, particularly her, her opposition to the Vietnam War and her commitment to political art. Her politics ranged from the large-scale issues of war and violence against women to a deep commitment to the community. This commitment announced itself as an alert re relation to the world she constantly questioned. In her posthumously published Fidelity, and what a beautiful word and underused word fidelity is, this language of, of the street its orality it's palpable, is palpable in the very first lines that stop us and pull us into a conversation that has already begun. The poet is a woman on the street who has understood that another pedestrian who has come alongside her is one who might listen, 
who might not be chased away by the intrusion of a stranger who turns to say, you can't think without thinking something, though I suspect I'd probably run like hell if somebody did turn and say that to me. But if it was Paley and, it had, and she had Paley's face, I would stop. And if that woman said, perhaps, what a hard time the Hudson has had trying to get to the sea. <laughs> or freedom has overtaken me. Or, this, or the woman in, the Paley, in a Paley poem is the, is the one who has opened her doors to more directly personal conversations that are also in progress. And they, although open, maintain a real boundary between her private life, her family and friends. And they entice a reader into the moral community of political debate. This enticement to speak out on such subjects as the arms trade, of labor policies, the trafficking of women, the nervousness of nations or their rage also presumes on Paley's part an intimacy of social and political responsibility. <coughs> Listening, attending in part to that responsibility. Paley's poetry is filled with people who speak to each other. To be at home in the world is not only to be closed in a space one knows and a space over which one has control, to be at home can also mean being on a park bench where yet another woman is telling yet another the story and tells it again and again. When the listener stops listening, the storyteller stops and wonders why and sits under the elm tree where she waits, perhaps to tell her story again or to listen to one. In a park, a space generated by urban space, and set aside to allow us to breathe in different ways, to hold and comport ourselves in different ways. Time is not the same. One might say it is perhaps the time of the poem. In such a time and space, Paley's woman is not, or women, are almost mythic, almost sphinx-like, almost. Because Paley's women ask no tricky questions. They don't expect to entice kings and, and move them on their trajectory, their kingly trajectories. Paley simply has a story, and her waiting tells us what she knows, namely that there are those who can wait a while, as Sixu says, writing asks us to. The one who listens teaches the speaker, as Paley wrote of Barbara Deming. First, she's a listener, and I'm quoting, so you can learn something about paying attention. Second, she's stubborn. So you can learn how to stand, look into another's face, and not run. Third, she's just. So you can learn something about patience. Fourth, she loves us, women I mean, and speaks to the world. So you can learn how to love women and men. Paley's poems perform the conversational, finding in the quotidian the profundity of how we make our way across huge concepts, sometimes with the simple assistance of that much maligned cliché, something I've written about a little in other places. So in a poem about the hard-hearted rich, Paley reveals the cliché, the rich are hard of heart. But the cliché is contextual, contextually determined, and that is what makes it predictable. Far from being superfluous or empty, 
What, pa- what Paley shows us about the cliché is that it exposes the presumptions and the expectations that inhere in the ideologically saturated everyday. The cliché is not to be confused with banality. Banality says nothing and does not have to be said. It makes no difference except to detract or distract. Paley teaches us that cliché is something one is compelled to utter in order to save oneself, perhaps in the face of me lie. One might say of the cliché that it does social and affective labor. It carries one across a moment of ordinary social discomfort or profound outrage, of anxiety in the face of some enormity. The cliché keeps one from sliding into the place where language stalls in some confrontation or where it cannot find its way back to the order and sense of syntax, of punctuation. I'll just skip ahead. I think that one of the things, and just to respond to something that, uh, that the speakers have been saying already, is that I, I realize something even more, that, that Paley shows us that cliché stops the language of obscenity that we find in political euphemism. And it also revives the slogan as being more than the language of the throat, as Orwell says, but rather the language of the the cri de coeur. Forgive my French. Let us return to Paley's first poem. A woman invented fire and called it the wheel. Was it because the sun is round? I saw the round sun bleeding to the sky and fire rolls across the field from forest to treetop. It leaps like a bike with a wild boy riding it. Oh, she said, see the orange wheel of heat, light that took me from the window of my mother's home to home in the evening. From those twinned inventions of fire and wheel to home, one might say that Paley brings enormity home, and in doing so notes that home is a space created, a creation that is handed on and taught and a creation that demands the most ethical response. And what is taught is how to manage living beneath the spectacular forces that surround us. And one first way of learning how to live in the face of such enormity is to learn one's relation to language. How manageable that simile of the bike, its wheels invented by a woman and given to a boy. How spectacular the fire of a language that gives us the bike, the boy, the leap. It is a humble gesture, severing centuries of patriarchal prerogative for which Prometheus stands. And it saves the boy from that terrible Promethean burden. How utterly marvelous he is at play, alive and agile. The fire of Paley's poem sets us in motion. Our imagination ignites. Yet there is a gendering of space, the boy outside, the female persona inside. But it is a gendering that does not trap either or make either space an exclusive domain. For as the daring of reclaiming a myth from the not monolithic singular, for the not monolithic singular woman, but the more humble a woman who invents fire. Paley's poem turns us to see how one can and must be at home in language. It is language that creates the ways we see and hear each other. It is what holds our understanding, and language is, shall we say, the footstep of our thoughts to echo Condillac. 
Such creation is not the work of the impersonal, impassive divine, and such work would also seek to move beyond the kind of house of race of which Toni Morrison concerns herself when she writes about the hijacking of language per se by a particular ideology. Paley's attention to language is anchored in her politics, as I said earlier, and as each of the speakers tonight has said. It is a politics that looks across the rhetoric of the Vietnam War to write of another city, Hanoi, 1969. The title of that poem is worth noting. It moves so quickly in Hanoi, 1969. The in tells us people live there. It is a home to others. Paley is the foreigner there. She wears her foreigners, American and fat, I'm quoting. But it is not, she is not the same foreigner as the wife of a diplomat turning the world's war zones and trouble spots into a clothing ex uh, shopping expedition. If language is to be learned and used, its poetic form is not above the concrete of naming how many rockets have fallen on two villages. These villages are homes too. The idea of home can never be sentimental for Paley. It is a place as concrete as the New York that claims cosmopolitanism and also forgets that claim. And that, like other cities, relies upon illegal alien labor, but does not know how to welcome that labor into legality, which is to say the protection of the laws of the land that they keep clean, the laws of the land for which they fetch and carry. It would be only in the hours or other moments when we legal residents are looking away, perhaps into the dreams of our nights, or to what occupies us in the day, that the illegals are moved away, like those in Illegal Aliens, one of her earlier poems. And I'll just read, quote, a brief extract. The Chicago airport O'Hare, 4.30 a.m. Fifty men in double lines handcuffed, dark men, probably Mexican, wearing the clothes in which they were taken. Paley understands that we are compelled to tell and compelled to listen. But to tell a story, a teller has to be at home with herself. And so that waiting is also something that the teller does in order to hear, to observe, to be outside of one personalized four-wall home and to be at home in a larger contingent world. And here is one who, with some respect and responsibility, the same respect and responsibility as Paley, an admirer of Paley, um, speaks. This is Ingrid de Kock, who looks forward and speaks of her own humble truth to the powerful legacy of apartheid. And I, I think that I was going to close with the Grace Paley poem, but really to keep it forward, keep it moving forward. Ingrid de Kock, a South African poet, is a huge admirer of Paley. And I just last week sent six copies to six different people of Fidelity on Ingrid's behalf. I came back from South Africa with a mission. And she said, please do not go to Amazon.com. Go and buy it from your local bookstore. I'm sorry I went to Amazon. This is, uh, this is uh, Ingrid de Kock, and, and uh, this is a poem uh, that she, from which she closes her book, um, Terrestrial Things, her response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Body Parts. May the wrist turn in the wind like a wing, the severed foot tread home ground, the punctured ear hear the thrum of sunbirds, the molten eye see stars in the dark. 
The faltering lungs quicken windmills. The maimed hands scatter seeds and grain. The heart flood underground springs, pound maize, recognize named cattle. And may the unfixable broken bone, loosened from its hinges, now lying like a wishbone in the felt pitted by pointillist ants, give us new bearings. Thank you. Thank you, Yvette. We will end the panel with Amy Swordlow, but not the conversation. Amy? the same age. We were born about two weeks apart. Uh, so I worry about things she worries about. Anyway, I want to start with a, a poem I'd never seen before. It's just a short statement that I think starts off what I want to say. My father said, how will they get out of it? They're sorry they got in. My father says, how will they get out? Nixon, Johnson, the whole bunch. They don't know how. Uh, God damn it, he says. I'd give anything to see it. They went in over their heads, he says. Greed, greed, time, nothing is happening fast enough. Which brings me to the thing that I think would concern Grace and concerns me greatly, which is the future. Uh, we're talking about speaking truth to power. I think this is a time to shout truth to power. Our country is facing generations of war. A declining world power with great wealth and military might needs to wage war to continue its influence and economic muscle. That was true of Britain in the late 1930s, leading to World War II. And it's true of the U.S. today. To maintain its status as a world political and economic power, it must keep us, keep us, uh, it keep its ability to threaten and to wage war for generations to come. How will the American people face this situation? It will be up to progressive forces in the country to educate themselves and to spread the word. What is the word? Outsmarting the media and those who own it will not be easy. During the Vietnam War, exposing governmental lies seemed to have a heavy impact, as, de, as did undermining the Constitution. Today, we take it for granted. A popular president, a progressive president, who is a militarist. We have a volunteer army today, not a drafted army. A president who we think believes what we believe, and still we are going deeper into a, a war. Uh, Grace um, was a pacifist. She was also um, a believer in the civil disobedience. And she was very critical of me because uh, Women Strike for Peace, not until the very end of the Vietnam War, participated in civil disobedience. And she made a statement to the War Resisters League saying, I love Women Strike for Peace, but they never uh, practiced civil disobedience. So I got on the phone and I said, Grace, what do you mean? We held those baskets in which the young men put their draft cards. We went to jail. I went to jail. You're not the only one who went to jail. <laughs> and she said, you're right. I'll call Dave McReynolds right now and tell him I was wrong. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that, that's Grace. And I, ju I just want to read something. Uh, when I think about 
Where do we get people like Grace, like Bella Abzug? Was this a special time? Was this a, is it the history? Uh, Bella, whose father was not a, a prisoner in Siberia, but he owned a butcher shop called the Live and Let Live Butcher Store. <laughs> It's a, a riot. <laughs> At any rate, um, we, we came from a time when parents and uncles and aunts were active in the trade union movement, were uh, uh, anti-fascist, even if they were not, many of them were anti-communist too, but they certainly were anti-fascist, and they certainly believed in the Constitution the way Constitution just flies away from us now. And so I just want to read something that I thought, uh, in, in looking through what I wanted to say, and this, this came up to me. Uh, uh, Grace was arrested at a big May Day demonstration in 1971. It was still wartime, uh, still wartime. We were arrested and we were in this big sort of football field. Barbara Deming and I were walking around arm in arm. We had been ar arrested together. It was very cold. Everybody was finding someone to walk with very close to. Later on, one person wasn't enough. We could try to get in groups that huddled 15. But at that point, Barbara and I were walking arm in arm, and it was a pretty messy place because this was the year they arrested 13 or 1,400, 14, 13 or 14,000 people just picking them up off the street. And then they didn't know what to do with them. At that point, we were in a football field. Later, we were put inside a stadium. And so we were walking around, arm in arm, talking to each other. And, and then Congress people came in. Uh, she and I had always had these. Uh, then Congress people came in, and Bella Abzik was among them. And she came over to talk to us. She said, I had always had these disagreements. She and I had always had this, these disagreements about the electoral work, her electoral work, and what you can call action, direct action. And we would talk to each other about this. So she came over and looked at me and Barbara walking arm in arm. She asked how we were. She was a congresswoman at that time. She was worried about us. We said we were all right. And then she said, well, I guess you are where you want to be, and I'm where I want to be. <laughs> and I want to say about Bella that she was this woman's Pentagon. She was at this woman's Pentagon demonstration, and there are people here who were there too, uh, including me. She came. She walked with everybody. She didn't look as uh, for any limelight or any, any kind. She just sort of walked and begged me. Uh, to, not to get arrested. Again, she said she thought it was a waste of time. I could do more outside. But she really was just a part of the action. That's what we wanted all of our leaders to be, just part of the women's action. That was a very kind look at Bella, because she wanted to be more than the woman, just part of, of the women's action. At any rate, um, my experiences with Grace were... Uh, we, we weren't on the same path because Women's Strike for Peace tried to be the lady next door. It tried to be that woman 
who, you could, who any American woman could identify with, trying to take care of your kids, being a good mother, being a good housewife. And you told us to take care of our kids. That was what Betty called the feminine mystique. You told us to take care of our kids. And you don't let us take care of them. You're going to kill them. You're going to slaughter them all. That was our vision. And Grace's vision was civil disobedience. And in a way, that civil disobedience was very important of telling truth to power. Because it got publicity. It got people to listen. It got people to watch. Uh, whether that could work again today, we don't know. And as I look around here, and I see that there are many people 10 years younger than I am, but uh, above 50, uh, I, I think I, at 80, going on 87, cannot make the revolution. <laughs> it cannot be done by me anymore, and I cannot even make peace. So we have to build a movement of younger people, and I think that's the legacy that Lee, Lee, Grace leaves us, to spread her message, but to spread it beyond us, because we have to realize that even Grace could not have uh, just spoken truth to power, and power would just collapse and say, oh, Grace, you're so right. <laughs> it, it would not happen. So what I'd like to see happen in this meeting is that we talk about how we could bring truth to power, and it might have to be in a more a nonviolent way, a more radical way, in a less radical way. But we have to figure out how even those of us who can't be on the front lines anymore, I know I can't, uh, can have some influence on what's going on now. We have a president that we all admired so, so greatly and who is a militarist at heart. And he always was. I think we just didn't recognize it. So I open it up to you to talk about that. Well, there's a lot to talk about. But some of the things that have come up very strongly are working with love and dignity together and also how stories teach and, in fact, also talking about working in the schools with something like the model of Escuela Popular and how to, as Amy said, how can you say, take care of our children when you're going to be killing them? Mm. It's more insidious. It's more invisible in some ways. Um, I think, I mean, Obama always said that Afghanistan was his war. He did not was, not say not that. Stupid, right? yeah. um, and then, of course, there are Russian generals who have said, you're insane, but, you know, there's not a listening going on. So how are we going to speak truth to power, bring more listening into a conversation that doesn't even exist yet. So how are we going to create the conversation and then bring in uh, the ingredients that will create listening space and maybe create isn't the right word, take the space perhaps. But I would love to hear from other people on the panel responding to each other about some of the ways that actually are ongoing right on this panel and some of the ways that are looking forward to other possibilities. Well, I, I think one of the things that I, I was uh, wanting to say something, oh, sorry, is, you know, another thing that came to mind this week that I didn't sort of mention explicitly was actually in my notes, is the amount of civil disobedience that is starting to go on. I mean, I think that there's also, in terms of 
you know, in my view, civil disobedience probably always makes sense, but, you know, it makes sense uh, to a larger number of people on a mass scale when there are campaigns which have been waged so endlessly and relentlessly, even to the point of, 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 of uh, winning public opinion, you know, like, for example, single-payer health care, right? But it becomes clear that, you know, you even have a majority will, if you will, or, or, or wish for something or, or wanting of something in a supposedly democratic society, and, you, can, you know, it's, you're just up against the corporations and the power interests, and, you know, people have taken those conventional methods as lobbying and letter writing, ad nauseum, you know, as far as they can go. So now you have, you know, on a, a kind of campaign that's gathering steam, which is the single-payer health care campaign where the, you know, people are sitting in at the private insurance companies, and then this week, just yesterday, at all the members of the Senate to get them to support the single-payer campaign, and nine people were arrested in New York yesterday. There are also the big actions around the banksters and the reform the banks and the whole, you know, financial crisis, which is at the center of so much. I mean, there really nothing can, much can be addressed without addressing that. And so, but people have hit the point. A larger group of people than those of us who would always think that was a fabulous idea. Um, um, the war resistors type hardcore. Um, and, you know, so I think that the issues of the banks, um, health care, the war in Afghanistan, climate change, all of these are places where there is um, a large public consensus over the need to address these things and the failure of the existing institutions of government and power to do so in anything like an adequate way. So, I mean, that does, I think it presents an opening, you know, or a sort of an ability to see certain power relationships which are not always so, so, so transparent, really. So I think this is where I think Grace would be really looking forward to lots of civil disobedience and, and urging all of us to be disobedient, you know, maybe to always keep voting and writing and calling and the rest of it, but also to, to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience in really large numbers and, to, you know, that we need social movements where people are going to do that. Lucila, would you be willing to say something about the women-driven solutions and the model of the Escuela Popular and how you work together with the community? She, she asked if I could answer. Um, it's so, a collective. Right. <laughs> so I'm also a collective member at the Center for Immigrant Families. Um, I think one of the ways that... I, or just one of the foundations for the Escuela Popular de Mujeres, which is our um, core program at CIF, what we do is really come together and build on each other's wisdom, experiences, and knowledge, and really use that as the foundation for what we want to see in our community. So together, we dream together, we think together, we analyze together, and we come together as a community to see what it is that each one of us brings to the table and how all of the different oppressions and the injustices that we face in our daily lives impact each one of us 
impact our families, and then together how it, they've impacted, you know, our communities as a whole. So it's very much a women-centered um, process which we have at the Center for Immigrant Families, and it grows out of each one of our experiences. And as all of our organizing projects, it comes beginning. It, it begins from our stories. So very much speaking to the storytelling and figuring how important it is to be able to share our stories as immigrant women. So beginning with who we were in our home countries, you know, and the process of becoming an immigrant woman, discussing the process of you know, what it was that we expected here in the U.S., and what were some of the differences that we've seen between what we expected and our realities. And so growing from that storytelling process of our migration stories is where we, we start to really analyze what it is that we want to change in our communities. And one of the things that, that has emerged time and time again in these discussions is a change in our public education system and a change in our community schools. Well, Grace made the point very often that you couldn't have done the Women's Pentagon action or the entire uh, Vietnam anti-Vietnam movement was very much influenced by feminism and by uh, starting with consciousness raising. But this business of everybody's opinion counts and there were no, you know, uh, my own personal experience was, because I was always an activist since high school, uh, you'd say something and nobody even paid attention. And then the man would say the exact same thing. And, oh, that's so true. That's so right. <laughs> so that, those things changed. But Grace made this point, and several things I read and just in thinking about tonight was that the Women's Pentagon action, for instance, uh, could not have happened without uh, the whole feminist process. Is there anyone else who wants to respond to each other on this panel somewhat? I think that the work that the Center for, um, um, I'm sorry, the work that the Center for, is it Center for Immigrant Families, Families right? right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it really provides a model, I mean, yeah. for something that is, you know, I mean, Grace would have been so delighted, and she would be so happy to hear about your work and so thrilled by it, and, and I think also to see it as a kind of advancing mm -hmm. of her kind of thinking and work and, and so on. So, I mean, I, I'm really interested in, I'm interested mm -hmm. in sort of hearing more about that. Right. The phrase, using wisdom that you used, Perla, that the wisdom that you have is part of where you start from and coming from the stories and the impact of coming to the U.S. and what that means in your lives and for your children is a very important story. 